0: Welcome to another edition of Policy Pod. I'm Giles and in this episode we'll be speaking with Dr Nick Pensiaro and Dr Christian Bukova about their recent work which looks at the implications for learning of pupils in the UK during the COVID-19 crisis. We'll be unearthing some positive developments, as well as looking at the many downsides of remote learning. So let's go on with it. So it's great to see you both and I think that we should start with a traditional question of uh, what did you do for your A-levels? Nick, would you like to go first?
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up in, uh, in southern Italy, in two towns, uh, Minturno and Formia. They are between Naples and Rome. I have a working class background. Uh, I am from a working class family. And um, as far as I remember, I've always been interested um, in abstract ideas, really. And I was a good student, so, uh, it's a good student in high school, but I wasn't really disciplined. So how does a kid interested in ideas, uh, but not very disciplined, become an academic uh, what saved me uh, was the welfare state, uh, Welfare state, really. Um, I attended a very good high school, a lyceum, very demanding. Yet my parents didn't have to relocate um, to the right catchment area. I just went to the closest lyceum, and it turned out to be a great school. And my class three completed a PhD and are now scientists mm-hmm. out of 30 people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And, and it, ter- it turned out also to be a great place because I met my wife there and with whom uh, I have uh, two daughters, two beautiful daughters. So after that I chose sociology, which is usually what you pick when you are interested in everything, like I was. Uh, I received a scholarship, again thanks welfare state, and I turned myself into a sort of machine really. I was studying all the time and received uh, the highest grades.
0: And Christian, uh, how about yourself? What, where, where, where did you start in terms of, uh, of study and, and what's been your journey to Southampton? Yes,
2: yeah, so I uh, grew up uh, in the Netherlands, a town just north of uh, Amsterdam. Um, and I first uh, did, let's say, normal mathematics and science uh, degrees and then decided I wanted to be a teacher. So from 1998, I was a secondary school teacher in mathematics and computer science for about 14 years. Uh, Met my wife during that time uh, as well. And I was always very interested as a practitioner to try and optimize or to improve my teaching of mathematics and, uh, and science. So, always been interested in that. But there, it's a busy job. So, you don't really have the time to look in more detail at what works. Um, so I got the opportunity then, uh, I think it was 2007, to uh, actually do uh, some part-time PhD research and actually dive deeper. So, like, have some time to actually unearth what works or uh, just explore what works in teaching uh, secondary mathematics. Uh, and I uh, managed to finish my PhD. And then I was uh, basically set for a dilemma. Either I would continue doing some more research or I would go back and go to full-time teaching. And although 14 years of teaching I enjoyed it a lot, I felt that at that point uh, going in the research trajectory, you know, I did a PhD, I enjoyed it, etc was the best thing to do. But in the Netherlands there weren't many opportunities. So I looked around a bit and this is when uh, in 2012 uh, uh, me and my wife and and the children actually, I have five children. One girl and four boys decided to move to Southampton in 2012, where I uh, took up a position as lecturer and now associate professor at the university. Actually, the two oldest children have also moved back to the Netherlands. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think it was a good uh, decision and I, I love actually looking at educational processes, which I think very much fits this particular project as well.
0: Well, and it's just so important to have the perspective of the of the practitioner and that you don't lose that when you move into a world of, uh, uh, of research. You, you, you've got that there and you're thinking about, well, how is this applied in a classroom setting and, and how will teachers be able to utilise the, uh, the interventions or the, uh, or the key findings that, that, that your work has, has been able to uncover. Um, but we should talk about those uh, those key findings. So I, I wonder if you could give uh, uh, an overview for the benefit of the listeners of the um, uh, of the project that you've been working on most recently, Um, uh, uh, who'd like to go first on that? Okay, I'll go first. So um,
1: with with COVID-19, we had uh, the largest uh, disruption of education systems in human history uh, that affected uh, billions of learners in hundreds of countries. And our project is about a particular aspect of this grand experiment inequalities in access to remote learning during the 2020 and 2021 school closure school closures in in the UK. so uh, we have been uh, generously funded by the US, ESRC and we uh, gratefully acknowledge their uh, their support. Mm-hmm. And um, thanks to this grant, uh, we managed to uh, to look at um, uh, at the issue uh, from, um, from from a statistical point of view, from a quantitative point of view. So we used rich data, rich, uh, rich longitudinal data from the uh, from Understanding Society, the UK Household Longitudinal Study, and um, uh, which provides a na- representative sample, high quality data, and on and collected information on learning during the two school closures. So, in this project, uh, we are um, interested in particularly in the prevalence of, of schoolwork during the two school closures. So volume of schoolwork, hours of schoolwork started uh, in March 2020 and lasted 15 weeks, the first one, and the second um, uh, started in January 2021 and, last, and lasted uh, six weeks, uh, if I remember correctly. So. That was. The, this is about the first question that we uh, addressed. The second is about um, uh, quantifying, um, estimating uh, the uh, the gap uh, in uh, the homework completed between uh, the least disadvantaged and the most disadvantaged uh, groups in uh, in the UK um, society. So our our study is really about the inputs. So the volume of schoolwork, right? It does not say anything about the outputs, but it's plausible that the consequences in terms of learning loss exceed what you would expect based merely on the quantitative reduction of the volume of schoolwork. And that's because children have lost much more than hours of learning, right? They have lost opportunity to play, to socialize, to eat healthy meals, uh, imitate, incorporate others and the teachers. So what we have is that uh, the transition to remote learning has basically forced families and schools to restrict teaching to exchange of information via electronic devices. So, in other words, it has reduced uh, teaching and learning to uh, listening
0: to lessons and then doing some homework and maybe some testing. So this this move to... Purely transactional, rather than the holistic environment that teachers create and that pupils uh, maintain in a in a classroom setting.
1: Yes, um, I'm happy to go back to those to those points about and uh, um, importance of in-person interactions and in-person uh, teaching. Um, but let me let me first summarize the um, a couple of points about um, about our findings. So the main findings. Uh, is that students spend fewer hours doing schoolwork work than they would normally do, which is five, right? Uh, that's the bad news. The good news is that there's been an improvement between the first school closure and the second one. So, okay. so the number of our hours completed for primary school children uh, went up, uh, let's say, from, two point, uh, from 2.3 to 3.3 hours per day. And um, at the secondary level, there's been also an increase, an improvement uh, from, uh, from
0: 2.6 to, uh, to 4 hours. So the, so, the, so the hard question that I, have, I can't resist asking is, is, why do you think that might be? well
1: we have explored we uh, we have been able to explore uh the reason uh, reasons for that um and what we found is that first of all is better school provision so school schools managed to in, to increase the number of uh, of lessons offered mm-hmm. offline and online obviously you would prefer online which is uh, live lessons rather than offline uh, lessons but um Overall, there's been an increase in the provision and, and, um, and um, online lessons experienced the greatest increase. So that was, uh, that was another good news. So that was the first point that contributed to the improvement in the hours of school were completed. Uh, second is better availability of computers. Obviously, you need equipment, right, to access those, uh, those lessons. And second is a behavioral component. So we think that we found that families were better able to engage Uh, with the schoolwork provided with the lessons uh, provided all these three elements contributed to the improvement in the total hours of
0: schoolwork uh, completed so in terms of your engagement with uh, uh, government and uh, and parliamentarians from this this work um, where have you been with that so far so we worked with public policy at uh,
1: Southampton and generated uh, um, a bit of uh, discussion in, uh, in in circles and uh, in in media. Uh, so we um, our research was featured uh, in uh, uh, more than one hundred uh, um, news outlets, uh, including including the Guardian. We had uh, impact meetings with. Uh, um um MP uh, Alan Whitehead uh, which has been supporting our research uh, uh, from the start um, so the government also um, um, report uh, mentioned and discussed our our research into publications and um, we, we held a, a policy roundtable which brought together the Ofsted, the OECD, uh, National Foundation for Education Research, Education Policy Institute, um, Academics. Um, and then we contributed to Understanding Society Insight 2022, which was the main publication through which Understanding Society, uh, the UK House of Longitudinal Study, presented the impact of, co- of COVID-19 on the UK um, society uh so um that that is a brief summary or of uh, what we are at in terms of engagement uh with policy
0: so we we've seen schools adapt and uh between uh between the first lockdown period and the, well, the school closure period and the second school closure period we've seen families adapt uh, in the way that they're managing this challenge and we've seen the kits, the technology getting out to uh, to people's homes in a way which wasn't uh, in, in the same manner previously. Um, how have the inequalities um, uh, between different learners uh, manifested themselves between these two closure periods?
2: Yeah, so I think what's unique about our study is its focus on the understanding society data which is self-reported by uh, families so um, of course this has drawbacks as well because we didn't ask schools but i think it's actually the family nexus let's say the family context that is so important in this particular case uh, because we're talking about closures where uh, students or the children are working from home online, perhaps are getting homework, etc., uh, and they are in a family context, right? Uh, may the availability of computers, working patterns of the parents. If uh, there's a single parent, then maybe there are less opportunities to, to support children. So one of our, you know, aims was to actually look at those particular aspects of the of the families as well. Um, there have always been inequalities, I would say, in uh, education, but during the first school closure, these were exacerbated by the closure for all these, you know, the combination of these reasons. Um, the good news is that in the second school closure, the inequality didn't become worse which is, you know, not not, you know, you could say that's a a little piece of light, perhaps, but that doesn't mean that these inequalities are not still there, right? And they need to be uh, addressed. Uh, let, let's call it learning loss or whatever. The, these hours, this this gap, these inequalities need to be addressed. Um, I think that the provision has improved is a, a positive sign, but there's still a world to win when it comes to actually address these inequalities so for example primary school children of single parents who worked from home were able to reduce the gap a bit with regard to schoolwork from the first to the second school closure compared to more uh, advantaged socioeconomic groups but generally these these gaps still existed in the second school closure so it's stable now but still a lot to address. I think that's the big point that comes uh, from our study. And especially, again, this focus on the family as a, a unit that we need to look at as well. Schools, of course, as well. But this particular study, study focused more on the families in the understanding society data. Thank you. So, So this is... This is PolicyPob where we like
0: to get down into the, uh, into the weeds of the policy uh, uh, interventions that have been developed. Um, uh, and, and I'd be really intrigued to get your view on the, uh, the National Tutoring Programme in particular. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, the, um, what you can speak to around the generation of that, but indeed the implementation of that in particular, I think would be of great interest.
1: Them. Yes, can I add a, um, a bit on the findings? Uh, because uh, from a more pessimistic point of view, the, the, uh, the question would be, why has inequality not reduced? So why not inequality has stayed, remained the same, but why has inequality not reduced despite the improvement in the provision and the uptake of schoolwork? Uh, Well, the reason is that um, accessing uh, remote lessons, remote learning requires parents who support their children with flexible jobs, uh, jobs which are amenable to uh, homeworking, um, requires parents to dedicate time to their child, and requires um, children's uh, motivation, uh, and these are behavior, and these are working parts which are difficult to change. No matter how you improve the provision, these are these are patterns, which are factors which are difficult uh, to change. Likewise, um, having a laptop, um, if a poor family cannot afford buying a a laptop, this is something that is hard to change. So uh, that is no surprise that inequalities have remained uh, the same despite the improvement in in the provision.
2: Can I add a little bit to that? I I think what is really important in education research and in the analysis that we're doing, that in the end, of course, all these things are a complex interplay of all kinds of factors. So indeed, uh, uh, lots of things need to be addressed at the same time. And if you change a couple of things over uh, on one side, then that will change other things on the other side as well. So uh, actually making sure that, and there are limited resources, right? Uh, so to actually allocate them in the best way is a, is a wicked problem. It's not easy. It's a complex interplay, and um, I think we don't we've never really had the 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 idea that doing this analysis would you know be the holy grail and and silver bullet and it would solve everything. But just this little bit more insight in how these factors come into play, I think was uh, uh, was important, and I think we've done that. So. Remind us of the uh, the original plan for uh, uh, for the national tutoring program. Yeah, so the government actually um, looked into, actually appointed someone to actually um, um, explore how much money perhaps would be needed for. I think they called it ca- catch up education or something like that. But basically, we're talking about how to address the learning loss. Uh, and uh, Kevin Collins was um, appointed to actually uh, look at this and he came to the conclusion together with others that 15 billion would be needed uh, and then unfortunately the government then um, only uh, made 1.4 billion available for this particular Uh, issue. And uh, that actually led uh, to Kevin Collins resigning because he felt that, uh, well, he couldn't do his job well enough with only 10% of the the monies made available, uh, which uh, makes sense, I would say. However, it becomes even worse if you then look at how that money that has been made available has been spent. Um, The National Tutoring Programme uh, employed an agency, I think, from the Netherlands to actually organise the whole uh, national tutoring, and um, only ten percent of uh, the the students or the monies that had to be uh, spent were actually spent on this. So, so it's basically ten percent of ten percent, which you know, in my book, doesn't sound like a big success story. It's it's rare that we can accurately say that something has been decimated, but for something to be decimated twice is quite the quite the negative achievement. I, th- I think that because it's so highly contextual, right, a school is in a certain area, a certain context, is in a certain a local authority, uh, might be part of a multi-academy trust, they're, they're all placed in a certain uh, context. They are the ones who know best which children actually need these, these resources, especially with regard to what we talked about, the inequalities and how to address these best. So, you know, you could very well argue that trying to micromanage this from a a central government point of view was never going to work very well.
0: No, it's interesting, isn't it? Over the COVID period, we've seen that the highly centralized nature of uh, of UK government has allowed for for some challenges to be addressed uh, really effectively. Uh, but this focus, uh, uh, and, and of course, a, a vaccination program, is is the example that's at the uh, in, in mind. But the. The uh, uh, the desire to uh, to run a centralised program when local knowledge is so critically important uh, uh, it has clearly shown itself in this in this particular program. So we uh, we. We we all remember the uh, uh, the Kevin Collins uh, resignation, but of course the other thing which is really in people's uh, minds when we look back at the impact on education is the uh, the exams fiasco, and particularly the exams fiasco part one of um, of of twenty twenty. I wonder if you could speak to uh, to that a little.
2: Yeah. So one one of the. The, the big worries, I guess, uh, when we're talking about learning loss is that at the end of the road, let's say at GCSE level exams uh, or A level exams, that, of course, students are not prepared well enough. Also in primary school, actually, for the SATs are not prepared well enough to actually do well on those exams. And because, of course, they are then used to go to subsequent education, I think lots of families uh, worry about that and, and students as well. How do they prepare? How do they need to prepare? And indeed, um, in the previous two rounds, this has been a bit of a fiasco because on the one hand, you want to ask the teachers um, to give, uh, let's say, an educated estimate of uh, the marks or the levels that they, that students would have obtained if they had actually set central exams and they have to uh, sit central exams because that's what uh, a big of, one of the big changes in the education system was that you didn't have you know uh, 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 as exams for example or or part two or three parts to the exam but you just sat a final exam and that wasn't possible of course because of the pandemic um they tried to solve this with uh, so called center assessed grades where teachers Uh, estimated what marks they would be getting, and there was quite a a lot of grade inflation. Now, I, I, I do want to say that this is not an intentional attempt, you know, to defraud the system. This is simply teachers who know their students best estimating what they think students would have obtained if they set those exams. That's not, you know, it's not a hard science because you actually have to sit them to actually know this. Um, So at first, they were uh, trying to account for all of this with all kinds of calculations, especially from Ofqual, who actually looks at um, these degrees and these calculations to make sure that there wasn't too much grade inflation. Uh, And then, of course, uh, lots of students who actually... Um, got their mark, saw that they were downgraded in a sense to make sure that there was no great inflation. Then as sometimes happens, governments uh, pulled back from this and then they were actually reinstated. Now, finally, we might actually get uh, real central exams again, which I think is a positive thing. But of course, if you're talking about learning loss and you've missed a part of the education that you need to sit the exams, you need to do something. Um, And uh, the way they solved it is to actually um, look at the syllabus for each subject and take out certain topics that will not be examined in the final central exam. So I think that is a positive development, I would say. Of course, we all want everything to be assessed and everything to be back to normal but that's not the case so given the circumstances i think that is a that is a realistic and reasonable thing to do. At, uh, at the outset,
0: um, uh, Nick, you, you mentioned that this, this great experiment, this enormous change to education globally, um, and uh, uh, and as you say, Christian, that there's a desire to uh, to get back to normal, but there's lessons to be learnt from this process as well, that things perhaps could be better or indeed different to, to how they were previously as well. I, I wonder, Nick, in terms of the... The, the extent of the remote or online learning and how that has replaced uh, in-person learning or perhaps augmented uh, in-person learning and, and what that might mean for the future of education now that we have uh, used uh, and participated in this great experiment and used the technology, um, uh, uh, whether there's um, uh, there, there, there's some things that we might want to, to take from this experience rather than just to return to how things were before. So, yes, so uh, we said
1: at the beginning that students haven't just missed uh, hours of learning they have uh, uh, missed opportunities for interaction and um, and uh, imitation and and play and i would like to start with mentioning a, a recent study uh, that looked at the effect of uh, reading and uh, learning on a smartphone uh, versus re- reading on a printed paper um, so uh, the study found that um, comprehension was lower when, uh, when reading on, on a smartphone. Uh, that's a pretty worrisome uh, finding. Uh, they tried to understand why um, is that was the case. And they studied the breathing patterns. Okay, so, And uh, they found that the normal uh, breathing patterns did not change between reading on a smartphone and reading on paper. However, one feature of breathing did differ, and that was the big size uh, that we take every five minutes. So every five minutes, um, consciously or not, we take these big inhales and big uh, exhales, and and that brings a lot of oxygen to the brain. So that particular pattern was reducing uh, when reading on, on a smartphone um so th- the finding suggests that reading on a smartphone might have um, caused a reduction of, of those size compared to reading on a paper and that in turn caused an overactivity of the prefrontal cortex which is responsible for attention and learning because the prefrontal cortex is desperately trying to to focus. So and that in that cause, a lower level of of, of comprehension. Uh, So the mechanism is that uh, contracting your visual window by using a narrow screen, then you're also suppressing your breathing that was, I think that that is a really interesting finding from a recent, from recent research. So then something about imitation, that is another crucial part, crucial component of our learning. Uh, A remarkable proportion of our abilities are learned through uh, through imitation. Uh, We take social cues about success, about prestige. And we try to imitate those who think are worth of our trust and our respect. Giles, you might remember, uh, one of your teachers in high school uh, was very, who might have been very charismatic, very passionate about the subject, and you fell in love with the subject, and you start to imitate the the teacher uh, because he he or she was the embodiment of success in that particular uh, context. Okay, that that is all gone during. Uh, During the pandemic. Now, this is such an important mechanism uh, in our species that we overdo it. Okay, so let's say we look at let's say we take we take children and we compare um, how children imitate behavior of adults compared to chimps. what children do, they will tend to imitate every action of the adult who is trying to solve a puzzle, a, a problem, uh, who is doing anything challenging, and uh, they will they will imitate the meaningful actions, the effective actions, as well as the unconsequential, ineffective actions. Teams um, are different. Chimps, uh, when 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 the behaviors are obviously inefficient, they are not imitating those. Okay, and so in this respect, they are they are even smarter. So we ha- we are hardwired to imitate to the point that we overdo it. That's how important imitation. That's how important our um, imitation is.
0: So thank you. I think if we perhaps could turn to having a conversation around some of the disadvantages that have been associated with this remote learning period, um, and in particular, Nick. Um, the, what where would you look to be able to identify some of those challenges? So, yes, what well, is distinctive about the disadvantage
1: in access to remote learning in these circumstances? So, uh, first of all, I would say uh, there are multiple factors that define this advantage. Not having a computer is, is one of them, uh, because for obvious reasons. Uh, so, uh, then um, having av- availability of a parent at home. Okay, so having a parent who is able, um, who is available, who is around because uh, he has um, a flexible job and his job uh, is amenable to um, uh, smart working, uh, that is also um, that is also um, um, a factor which accounts for advantage and disadvantage. Uh, and, and obviously, uh, professional managerial parents are more likely to have these types of flexible, as uh, smart working jobs. Uh, then I would say the third element is um, is ability. So uh, parents with higher levels of of, um, of education and, uh, and, and from managerial and professional occupations, they're typically they are, they are better able to support and guide their children um, towards completing the, uh, uh, homework. So it's really three factors: they're having the equipment to access the inputs, then having parents available. And then having parents who are able to support your uh, your learning um, at at home.
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that is clear again that in our study we very much focus on the the family element here. So if we're talking about the the challenges of remote and online learning, then uh, you've got the family context there. Of course, you're already missing. Uh, The relationships that you normally would have in a school, you also are missing some of the cues that are in school. But then you also have the the family context, the the context of the home, where uh, parents might be able to support uh, children less or more, depending on that context. There are loads of distractions, if I think of my own family, uh, uh, you know, the, the PlayStation is is always available. So you need to make sure as a parent that they're, of course, doing their schoolwork and not doing anything else. But how do you monitor this, et cetera? So there are lots of things at play uh, regarding parental involvement and parental uh, context, which I think is, is really um, unique to these closures. However, I will say that even when students go back to school now or are in school, this parental context is, has not just gone away, right? It's still there. And uh, I, I will say that there are uh, a couple of things that I think England and, and more widely, uh, perhaps the United Kingdom, for example, could do better uh, when it comes to, for example, a, a culture of homework. you know if you are if you are used to having one hour or two hours of schoolwork in secondary school after school, then perhaps if there is, again, a lockdown or there is an online context, you might shift more easily in keeping on doing that, right, uh, uh, at that point. But in my opinion, and this is a bit more anecdotal, but uh, coming from the Netherlands, England does not have a very strong homework culture in that sense. So they're not very used to actually doing it. So hopefully now, actually, because the infrastructure is now better and more in place, maybe they will do that and actually when when we had this storm coming just a, a month ago a couple of weeks ago i was quite pleased to see that the school immediately said well you you can't come to school but we've put all the homework immediately on the platform and i think that's something they learned from 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 the lockdowns and something similar, I think, perhaps uh, uh, might be when it comes to instructional materials, right? I'm I'm not interested in a crumpled up worksheet that no one can access anymore because my 14 year old is not so so careful with his crumpled up worksheet. But maybe things like you know online platforms, textbooks uh, could actually um, support families much more at home if something like this might happen again, or if it doesn't happen. Which we all hope, um, just to support them in general with the normal uh, daily routine of going to school and having a bit of homework. It felt almost like we found a a glimmer
0: of light of positivity, which has been uh, uh, that could be adapted into practice from
2: from this experience. There, I think there absolutely are a couple of things that schools uh, have learned in in this experience. Uh, It still is an an awful ordeal, of course, uh, over the past years. But at least, you know, adapting uh, to, you know, more effective ways of using online learning rather than sending a URL and say, well, go and look for yourself. That's not teaching, right? I think there are now, uh, uh, at least there's a little bit of infrastructure that supports more effective online practices. Nick, would you like to come in there? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay then. Well, I mean, thank you for being honest. Um, good. Okay. Um, so on that uh, uh, on that high note, Christian, Nick, thank you very much for your time. Uh, a really good conversation this afternoon.
1: <music>